If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue, obviously, our walk through the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at part one of part two. Two parts is what I'm trying to say. And um, so everything you hear this morning is really going to set us up for next week. Now, there's applications throughout it, but really we're just going to be setting the stage for that, that passage where the, the handkerchiefs and the aprons of Paul were being rushed out and people were being miraculously healed just from touching his handkerchiefs and aprons and how that passage has been woefully taught incorrectly. So we're going to set the stage for that. And we're going to pick up in part one here. And we're going to start in chapter 19, beginning in verse 8. Beginning in verse 8. 1 through 7 is almost identical to the last part of, of, of 18. So we're going to pick up in verse 8. And when he entered the synagogue in Ephesus, you'll find that in verse 1 of chapter 19. As he entered the synagogue in Ephesus, he continued speaking out boldly for three months. By the way, the longest he ever spoke in a, in a synagogue from, from what the Word of God tells us. Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were become hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, Paul withdrew from them and took away some of his converts, his disciples, and Reason daily in the school of Tyrannus. This also took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs and aprons were being carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out. And we'll stop right there as we set the stage for the rest. But with that being said, let's open up God's word together and ask his blessing. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. And we echo the words of David. Blessed is the Lord who bears all of our burdens. Who is our salvation. God is to us. You are a God of deliverance. And to you alone belongs escape from death. We love you, Father. We love your Son. We love your Holy Spirit. May the desire of our life be to never grieve him. Send your Holy Spirit in a unique way that our eyes might see clearly that your Son would be exalted in our presence. We ask one thing, that we might know him better. May our bodies, may our lives be living sacrifices which is only reasonable. And so, Father, I pray this, and I ask this in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you are glad you're here, say amen. Amen. All right. Whoa. All right. 
I'll take that. Nothing substitutes hard work. Nothing, <laughs> amen's got soft. Right, just boom, right there. I don't know about that. Nothing substitutes hard work. But truth of the matter is, almost all of us want more for what? Less. I do. I don't know, I do. I want more for less. How many here would like more gas for less? Anyone at all? That's right. That's the Lord's will. All right? No. We all want more for less. This is, by the way, the marketing strategy for almost every industry out there. And unfortunately, the same mentality and strategy often seeps into the church as well. More for less. I recently received a flyer in the mail for another church that was being started in Grand Rapids. And to that I say, praise God. Praise God for churches that are started. And I read the flyer on both sides, every word of it. It had a stock picture of every possible relationship on earth. Dogs catching frisbees, grandparents walking with children. And by the way, they were all laughing and they were all fit and they were all attractive, perfect people. It was in many ways what I would consider a church beer commercial. You ever notice that on beer commercials? Everyone is thin, attractive, fit, and having a good time. That, by the way, has never been my experience ever, wherever there was a lot of alcohol in my life. Recently, I went to a party, and someone had had a little bit too much to drink, and they came up to me, and they said, how are you? And I'm like, I'm fine, all right? And they said, do I know who you are? And I said, I don't think so. And they said, can I have a hug? I said, have you been vaccinated? I don't know. I don't know. But there were very few fit people around at that time, but I digress. This flyer had a picture of perfect people handing clean water to those in need, children's ministries, philosophies, which, by the way, are are good things. And then a small bile on the pastor and his perfect family playing in the field as their kids chased bubbles. They just blew gently into the breeze. And as the pastor and his wife were laughing in the background in glee as their children chased bubbles in the sunlight. And I looked at Amy and I said, why don't we blow bubbles into the wind and, and lovingly laugh as our kids chase them. <coughs> Whoa. All right. I said, why don't we blow bubbles with our family? And she said, because we're not perfect and they'd kill each other. (laughs) I said, speak for yourself. So I went and I found some pictures of our kids and we tried to take pictures of them. Now you notice, it almost appears that there's bubbles in those pictures, all right? This is my oldest son, Tyler, face-planting Titus when mom wanted a picture. And of course, he had already taken care of Madison, which was her universe. That was her resting face right there when she was growing up. And then we got the beautiful picture right there. Now, technically, Titus, I don't owe you $5 because your face is planted in the snow, so your image is not being used. (laughs) Just a little side. So I turned the flyer over, and I read the rest of it, 
word for word as it snaked around all the perfect pictures of people. I looked at Amy and I said, did you, did you read this? And she said, yes. And I said, what do you think? And Amy is very perceptive on these things. She said, they're starting a church and on the flyer they sent to introduce themselves, there's not a single mention of the name of Jesus once. And there is no mention of the need for the gospel. But here's what it did offer. Lots of bubble blowing. Lots of bubble blowing. But isn't this kind of the desire of all of our lives? It's old as the serpent and Eve telling her, you can have more for less. Eve, you can have more for less. Just eat what God forbid. You won't even need God. Just eat this apple and you shall be like him. Shortcuts. We often tend to want to see great and mighty things that cost us nothing great or mighty. We want more for less. So allow me to speak to my own heart here this morning, and maybe you can just listen in. I'm, I'm not reprimanding you. I'm reprimanding myself in front of you. I have found over time that the only thing I get with less is less. And the only thing I get with more is more. And we'll see this borne out in the text that nothing substitutes for dedication in hard work. So we're going to start out with the hard work and then next week we'll look at the reward. Now it says this, he entered the synagogue and was speaking boldly for three months. This is the synagogue in Ephesus. We find that in verse 1 of this text, it's important to understand, by the way, the culture of this city. It's important to understand the culture of anything that you walk into. It is very important. It is the home of the temple Artemis, or otherwise known as the god of Diana. This temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. It had 147 pillars around it that were, that were 60 feet tall. In all 127 pillars supported the work of art that was the ceiling. It was 425 feet long, 200 feet wide, and it was full of gold and full of jewels. It had a large image of Artemis in there, inside of it that believed that had fallen from the stars like that of a god. Here's the point. This temple in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world, is a beautiful picture or manifestation of what was going inside the lives of everyone who lived in Ephesus. Ephesus was the center of a thriving occult and culture. You'll see in the text next week, there's exorcists and magicians and occult-believing people. It was just a thriving occult culture, and it seeped into all the ways that they lived their lives. In fact, we will see by the end of next week that those who came to know the Lord brought out all of their occult images and books and paraphernalia, and they, they burned it in the streets. With this in mind, we even see this when Paul writes that famous verse in Ephesians. When he writes in Ephesians about what he saw in Ephesus, he wrote this in chapter 6, verse 12. For we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and against worldly forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. He acknowledges the culture that they are in. So how do you begin to work in such a culture? Well, with love, it is 
and I mean this with love, okay? It is not a flyer of us blowing bubbles in the wind. It is hard work in keeping the gospel of Jesus Christ front and center, spoken clearly in our lives and lived out plainly in our lives. In fact, he did this with religious people for three months. He did this for three months. He was in the synagogue reasoning and persuading. And what was he busy doing? Persuading and reasoning about the kingdom of God. When you see the words the kingdom of God there, I want you to think things that are concerning Christ. His Well, I misspelled Jesus, but Jesus' life, person, and work. How to enter communion with God through salvation. Here's what I want you to see. He was teaching the gospel. He was teaching the gospel. My friends, the only way to effectively grow the church of Christ. Now, that is a huge distinction. Of Christ. Church of Christ. The only effective way to grow the church of Christ and not the church of us. Understand the difference. But the church of Christ is to teach the gospel and the kingdom of God. My friends, by God's grace, we are seeing people saved here at Trinity. I, you know, I think of Deanne Baber. Deanne, how you feeling? You're here today, right? You just recently led someone to, to Jesus Christ. Did I hear that right? Okay, thank you for your boldness, Deanna. All right, no, I'm just teasing. She led someone to Jesus Christ, and we're, we're seeing people. People of all ages are being baptized. We see eight-year-olds going out there, and we see 80-year-olds going out there. I got to tell you, you're probably one of my... Uh, Jeff, you're one of my, is it Jeff? See here. It was one of my favorite baptisms. We took you out in an inner tube, did we not? Yeah, that was my favorite. Because you had, you had casts on. And we took you out and there was that wake and it was just beautiful. I remember it very well. We have people being baptized. I don't know about, you know, I just want to say this as encouragement. We have almost 40 to 50 people in our membership classes right now who want to join the church. We're going to be literally just taking the whole hour reading their names next week. And then we'll close in a word of prayer. But let me be clear. The only reason this is happening is because God's word, his kingdom, and his gospel is powerful. Amen? That's the only reason The gospel must be the means by which any church of Christ grows. And we must never be tempted to drift away from that power. So let us do that right now. Salvation is not knowing who Jesus is. Salvation is not knowing who Jesus is. The gospel is not agreeing to the terms of what the Bible says and then doing whatever you want. The gospel is the life and the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it is being appropriated into our lives. Here's the question, have you done that? The evidence of true salvation is growing to love Jesus Christ with all of your heart and all of your soul and mind. But let us be reminded that, that the gospel's power pushes in both directions. This is important here. It pushes in both directions. And really, that ought to shake many of us who have grown up into the church to our very core. Because look at these words. But some of these religious people for three months in the synagogue were becoming hardened. For three months, they listened to the gospel. 
And the product was two things. People were either being saved, i.e., we see it here, they were disciples and becoming disciples, or they were becoming hardened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word hardened here is one that I know well because it describes really my entire childhood and early adulthood in the church of Christ. I am convinced more and more that the miracle of salvation can oftentimes be more pronounced in a church attender coming to Christ than some overt lost sinner. In fact, the word hardened here means stubborn with our emotions. To be stubborn with our emotions. By the way, this is the same expression that is used to describe the heart of Pharaoh when his heart was hardened. Here's my point. When we repeatedly reject the true gospel... If we repeatedly reject it, it hardens our heart. In fact, it becomes annoying. It becomes a stench in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 2.16 says this about, about us who grow up under the gospel of Jesus Christ and never fully accept it. It says, it says this right here. It tells us that those who repeatedly reject it, the gospel becomes an aroma of death to people. I don't know about you, but when I come in close contact into the stench of death, I go the other direction. And the only thing that rejecting the gospel leads to is a hard heart that that engages and, and causes us to be disobedient to the gospel. Now, when I say disobedient, I just don't mean, oh, we're violating some, some measure of the law of God. Oh, well, that umbrella certainly would cover it. More specifically here, it talks about not repenting, not accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ because God has commanded every man, every woman and child, to to accept his gospel. Here's the point. Our spiritual hearts can get calloused. They can get calloused. Also, let us remember the hearts are hardened in this immediate context are those of religious synagogue-attending people. By the way, if you want to know the first sign that a person or that you or that I who have grown up in religious circles have a hardened heart to the gospel, that we have never truly accepted the gospel, we may have agreed to some terms, but, but we haven't accepted it. One of the first signs is that we will mock or despise those who have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at the text here. It says, speaking evil of the way before the people. Have you ever said the words outwardly or inwardly with contempt? I don't like them. They're just a bunch of holy rollers. Why do we mock or tear down people who have a close relationship with Christ? May I submit because it exposes our counterfeit one? Look at it here. They're speaking evil of the way. The words, the way. The way is the first title that was given to followers in Jesus Christ before they they hanged the term Christian on us. Before they, with contempt, said they're Christians, they used the phrase, the way. So they're speaking evil of, of those who follow Jesus Christ. These religious people who sat under the Word of God, that is the Old Testament Scriptures, were mocking and tearing down those who were true followers of Christ. Because they have rejected the gospel and their hearts were hardened. So what do you do if you're religious and you see that someone truly loves the Lord? Well, you tear it down. So let us take account of some real truth here. The gospel is never dormant. 
The gospel is never dormant in our lives, in our hearts. We are either being drawn because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that in membership classes this morning because of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are either being drawn to make Jesus the love of our life or we, were, we, we are, are becoming more calloused and apathetic to the gospel. So the question here that we have to be honest with is which way are you trending? Which way am I trending? Which way are we trending? And what will we do about that? If you leave here today without responding to the kingdom of God and the gospel message, whether that be your need for salvation or your need to recommit your life to the Lord, let let the scriptures be clear with what the text is saying. And may it be clear in my own ears as well. If we leave here without responding, it actually makes it more difficult to respond the next time. Until we can't. So look at what Paul does. I like this. We're going to return to the subject of hard work and the gospel here. He withdrew from the synagogue. He withdrew from these religious people under the Old Testament scriptures. And he took his disciples, recent converts that he had in Ephesus over the last three months. He, he, he went away from them and he took his disciples. By the way, did you know that this marks the last time that we see Paul in a synagogue in all of the book of Acts when Luke is writing? This is it. It's time for him to go. So Paul and his followers make, make arrangements to continue their teaching in this occult, thick community. And so they rented a hall belonging to a local philosopher by the name of Tyrannus, Saurus Rex, where, Tyrannus. Am I saying that correctly? Anyone? Tyrannus, Saurus Rex. All right. Here's a fun fact. I like this here. The hall belongs to a man named Tyrannus. Tyrannus. Which, by the way, literally translated means tyrant. It means tyrant. Now, almost every scholar that I've read believes that no one really had the, the, the proper name tyrant. But that it was rather a nickname gave, given to him by his students in the city of Ephesus, in a lecture hall that he owns, his students nicknamed this man Tyrant. How many? I'm not going to go there yet. All right. Now, how would you like that? You think Baptist deters people from coming to church? Imagine, hey, where are they meeting? They're meeting at the Tyrant Hall. That's what we're looking at here. How would you like that? I, I was thinking about this this week. Hey, this is Pastor Brett and Elder Dave Brannon. We affectionately call them tyrants. Now, some of you may say, yep, that seems to fit. Dave Brannon, I get, but no. Anyway, let's move forward. I want to make an announcement here. This is a parenthetical note. I'm taking some time. I want to make an announcement. I grow weary of how people seem to think that their way of doing church is the best way of doing church. The idea that the early church was just home churches is simply not true. The idea that churches cannot meet in homes are certainly not true. So here's just some obvious observations from the patterns here. Most churches in early Acts started out by meeting in synagogues. All right, They met in synagogues until the synagogues got hostile and shoved them out and pushed them out. They then met in large meeting areas such as the temple courts or Solomon's colonnade or, or like we see here, a, a lecture hall that was rented by a, a man whose nickname was Tyrant. 
Then when persecution or hostility came into these large open areas, they went into homes. Here's the point. The church has always been opportunistic. It grows where it may. Homes, yes. Early synagogues, yes. Large buildings, yes. So let's just put all the ecclesiastical pills down and stop fighting over form. And unite over furthering the kingdom of God because churches are not in competition. We are in companionship. As long as they're garb, all right? No, I'm joking, I'm joking. Now, I need you to do one more thing here with this text. Now, we're going to dig deep. How many here, and this is, I think it might be one of my last points. I don't know, I haven't turned the page yet. So I can't lie because it's a lie of omission, not commission. So technically, it's a lie, but it's covered, all right? (laughs) How many here have ever purposely remained ignorant so you could say what you needed to say? Anyone at all? I have never done that. (laughs) Can we dig deep? You ready to dig deep into this? We're going to go into the Coptic Latin text that was written in the second and third century. How many are excited? Yes. How many want to leave right now? You are dismissed, all right? I like this here because it's going to be an application about the hard work that brings reward in the kingdom of God. So here we go. We're going to dig immensely deep for a moment. Now, the earliest Coptic versions of this text in the Word of God. Now, by Coptic, I mean Latin versions from the Greek written in the 2nd and 3rd century. All right? The Coptic versions of the Bible have additional information in them that the Bible on your lap does not have. In fact, in verse 9, it adds hiccups. All right? I got the hiccups right now. In verse 9, it adds the words, For the fifth hour, from the fifth hour to the tenth hour, Paul taught in this lecture hall. That's in the second century Coptic versions. And it complements, he's in the hall, right? The, the hall of the tyrant. But from the fifth hour to the tenth hour, that's where he taught. If I could translate that into our language, that's 11 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. Five hours. This means he taught from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., which may beg the question, why is this not in our Bible? Well, here's some good news. Truth of the matter is, it is in your Bible. It's just there in a different way. Our versions today may not say this directly here, but it does say it indirectly elsewhere. And when we cross-pollinate different passages, we see that this yellow Coptic is still true. Allow me to show you. We know that Paul taught between 11 and 4 p.m. because in Acts chapter 20, verse 34, and 1 Corinthians 4, 12, Paul tells us that he worked hard in the morning and hard in the evening. All right? He worked hard to provide for his own needs while in the city of Ephesus. Now, even though he deserved to be fully supported, he is in a very cultish culture and he wanted to differentiate himself from this culture so rather than getting rich off the gospel in front of them and just blending in with everything that is going on he he decides to work hard in the morning and in the evening providing for his own needs and then working in the middle of the day in the hall teaching the word of god This means that he worked hard during the day. Now, it's important to understand that in this culture, the workday was broken into three divisions, and there they are, all right? The first division is you woke up, and from 7 in the morning till 11 a.m., you worked in in the time when there wasn't a lot of heat during the day. The second part was from 11 to 4, and this is when you would rest, or if you will, 
have a siesta for five hours, 11 to 4. You just got a break. How many here would say, I like this culture? Anyone at all? Maybe you won't because look at the third section. And then as the heat went down, you worked from 4 till 9.30 at night or till you no longer could see at night because the sun went down. Notice, when did Paul teach the second one? He taught 11 to 4 p.m. So what we see here is this. Paul worked with the Coptic version supporting what, what Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 4 already tells us. What we see here is that Paul worked from 7 to 11 a.m. Then when everyone was resting, he spoke the gospel from 11 to 4 in a lecture hall that he rented. Then went back to work from 4 to 9.30 p.m. And he did this six days a week for, here it is, two years. Dr. Lake says this, in this kind of culture, you'd find more people asleep at 1 p.m. than you would at 1 a.m. But not Paul. What is Paul doing? He is working like a mule. He is sharing the kingdom of God. One commentator said this, if you were to add this all up, it would be 3,120 hours of teaching over a span of two years, which means that in two years, he would have preached four and a half months straight, 24 hours a day. Paul was working hard. Why? Why? Here it is. Remember, the culture of the occult in which this community is steeped in Only long-term hard work will penetrate this city. It is no wonder the text will mention soon handkerchiefs and aprons were being carried away from his body. Now we get we get drawn into the romantic and they were miracles and healing. Where's my handkerchief? Maybe we need to make one first. Now allow me to unpack what that means. You want to know what the word handkerchief translates into our day and age? Sweatbands. Sweatbands. Paul was drenched in sweat, working 15 hours a day as he promotes the kingdom of God. Now my point in telling you isn't so that we can excuse emotional or physical burnout. We must find times of margin. We must find times of rest. We must have the uh, time where we go away and, and it gives us the ability to rebound emotionally from life. But the balance of the two is this. When we are not at rest, let us be at work. When we are not at rest, let us be active and not passive to further the kingdom of God. My friends, there is no substitute for hard work and there is no substitute for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of this truth, let us be far more than someone who just warms a pew on Sunday and says, that's my church. It's not your church, it's your chair. Let us avoid serving because we would have rather had the the ministry structured a little bit differently. Let us lay down our excuses for wanting more for less. Do we really think for a moment that Paul thought the most ideal way to promote the gospel would be a lecture hall owned by a tyrant in between a double shift every day? But that's what needed to be done. 
My friends, if we want to see hearts mature, let us learn of His holy and righteous standards. If we really want to worship, let us then offer our lives as living sacrifice. If we want the church to grow healthy, let us never drift from proclaiming the gospel. Let us sing it into the ears of those in the nursery. Let us color it on the table with our toddlers. Let us talk about it with our children. Teach it into ourselves. Share it with the lost and live it in our lives because when it comes to growth in Jesus Christ there is no substitute for the gospel let's put our bubbles down and share the gospel live the gospel work the gospel and put our heads down and get our sweatbands soaked for the kingdom of God, because maybe, just maybe, then maybe, we will experience a little more of what Paul does in this text. Look at this. And all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And did you know that it was during these two years that all seven churches found in Revelation were planted? In two years, that number one up there, that's Ephesus. And it just moved all the way around. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And it is here that we see the reward of his labors. Now, I just want to grab the word extraordinary for a moment and close with it. And we will unpack what was happening next week. But let me just say this. If we want to see extraordinary things happen here at Trinity, in this culture, If we want to see extraordinary things happen here, then we cannot drift from the extraordinary power that is the life, work, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, all of it, even the parts we don't want to hear. We cannot trade the whole counsel of God for a church bubble blower. You see, it is our nature, and I know it's mine, to want more for less. My friends, the first thing I want us to see in part one of this is that there is no good substitute for hard work. The only recipe that God has promised to multiply His church is is right here in this text. Hard work and never straying from the gospel is what produces the greatest results. God's plan is not complicated. In fact, in 2 Timothy, he just said it real simple. Preach the Word. Live the Word. Become the Word in season and out of season. And watch the fruit. You may not even have to pick it. It will just sovereignly fall. The Gospel is unstoppable. You could even say that the gates of hell cannot stop it. I love you guys. This week, we just set the stage for sweatbands, hard work, and dedication. No substitutes for hard work in the gospel. Next week, we'll see how the Lord blessed that. The reward of all his sweat equity. Simple question. Are you working hard? in the kingdom of God. What are you doing? What are you doing? 
Gracious Heavenly Father, dismiss us with your blessing. May our love for you grow as our knowledge of you grows. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.